we need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Yes, dear listener, we're back live on Tuesday night. I'm back from my holiday. I'm here with Joe. How are you, Joe? I'm good, and you? I'm very well. So feeling relaxed and refreshed. <laughs> if you're watching well, after that little boat bobbing on the ocean, I'm not surprised. Yeah, if you're watching the live stream or the video, then you would have seen scenes from Fitzroy Island where I was, which is just off Cairns and. It's just like a 45-minute catamaran journey and there's a resort there and the beauty of it is that the sun sets over the water, which is always very nice and romantic, and you can just walk off the beach and there's great coral for snorkelling. So so I highly recommend Fitzroy Island if you go to Cairns. It's excellent. So the resort, not too expensive, not too flash, but it's like not five-star, but anyway, all very good. Good to be back. Good to be live. All of the recording stuff seemed to work well, so that was a triumph. If you're in the chat room, say hello. Hello, Tanya, and you're the first one there. Good on you. All right. Well, tonight we're going to talk about economics, foreign affairs, religion, federal politics, a pop quiz, usual mixture where probably cover 30 topics in two hours, something crazy like that. Hello, Mel, in the chat room. But... As I was doing the heading for the promo for this, I realised episode 350, which is a nice number to reach. And that means also on the 4th of July, the podcast passed the seven-year mark, I guess. So It's a scary thought. It is, isn't it? So 50 episodes a year, seven times 50, 350. I'm keeping up a good pace. (laughs) So are you, Joe, because we were just discussing trying to work out how long you've been on it and it seems like a couple of years 100 100 odd episodes yeah something like that although i don't know if it's as many episodes because we've been doing fortnightly for a while yeah so so anyway so yeah 350 episodes well i will pause and just reflect a little bit on the podcast so Obviously, with starting with Scott, who's up there in Mackay now, and we'll be back on at different times. Scott, if you're there, hello. And, you know, looking back, Paul the Twelfth Man, uh, Was and Shay and now Joe, and over the years there's been some regular guests such as uh, Hugh Harris and Craig as Deep Throat and Paul Waper in recent times and also Cameron Riley appeared a few times as well over the years. So thank you to all those people who have chipped in from time to time. And the Butterfly Man, Frank. Yes, that's right, Frank Jordan. The Butterfly Man was in a couple of times, yeah. So originally, dear listener, like it's a bit I mean, all the old episodes are still there. You can go right back to the very beginning. Originally very much focused on secular issues, religion, and there's only so much you can talk about with that. And so we you know, worked into just general politics and stuff. And when I was doing my submarine episode, I realised that I started talking about submarines way back in like episode five or something like that. So I've been on submarines for a long time. That was one of my better picks where I said, this is completely ridiculous and it's turned out to be the case. And also it's, 
Yeah, definitely things have changed. I mean, previously I was definitely more right-wing leaning than I am now, more libertarian right-wing in those days. I was agreeing with the 12th man far more than I would today would be the case. So that's all right to sort of change your opinions over time. Like I think I have on different things. Maybe just change perspective as well on some things without necessarily changing the opinion. I mean, you can look at some things and think they're a big problem but really they're not. It's not what's going on so much. So I think like things like Quillette was a website that I quite liked in the early days and probably liked Brendan O'Neill in spite, probably even Douglas Murray, somebody like that. But after a while you realise actually it's just a straw manning of stuff that's not really going on. It's a beat up. So that's, you know, how I sort of think about a lot of that stuff. So... I started to think of some of the things I said back in the early days and who knows, in three years' time, Joe, I may shudder to think about what I'm about to say tonight. <laughs> I, I do remember a discussion about voting green. Right. And and I think how outlandish it seemed. I think I played yeah. a clip from a from somebody who said I've I've I may have lost my I may have lost something, but I haven't lost my fucking mind. And he, was, he wasn't going to vote green or something like that. So yeah, ended up voting green in the last election. Yeah. In my defence, even though I have sort of been sympathetic to some of those characters, I always despised Jordan fucking Peterson, like from the very beginning, and also Scott Morrison. So I can pick some charlatans off from a distance pretty quickly. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the whole Channel 4 interview with Jordan Peterson was a masterclass in how to not let somebody put words into your mouth. Yes, it was. Aside from that, the yeah. man, it, it just vacuous bullshit, I think, is the... With a frightening uh, amount of religion thrown in there and yeah. love of the Bible, yeah, where I think a lot of rationalists initially thought, oh, this guy seemed interesting, and... Once you really look through the gobbledygook, uh, you thought, oops, this is perilously close to some religious dogma that this guy's promoting here. And, and I, I, there were a few liberal-minded people who, around the time of COVID, seemed to just go completely off the deep end. They realised that the left were ignoring them and that to raise funds that they needed to go further right. And they have. Yeah. Captured by their audience to some extent. You're thinking think Margie so, yeah. Nawaz? Is that what you're thinking? I, no, I wasn't oh. actually. I was thinking of Brett Weinstein and his wife, Heather Hying. Right. The oh, the UK comedians, the podcast. Trigonometry. Yes. They went off the rails. Who, yeah. So there was a whole load that went deep into the conspiracies. Yep. Yep. Oh, Deepak Chopra, no. Deepak Chopra has yep. never... And, and, John, my point was I wasn't on board with Peterson. From the very beginning, I said the guy is a is not to be glorified in any way. So, yeah, but you're right. There was that sort of internet inter, intellectual mm. dark web. And I really like a podcast, dear listener, called Decoding the Gurus, which is looking at the Weinsteins and the Jordan Petersons, the Douglas Murrays, the even Sam Harris... I still like Sam Harris. I think he's blind to a few things, particularly economics and American power. But but Decoding the Gurus is a really good podcast for looking at some of these characters in depth and 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 just 
decoding them and looking at what they're saying. Is it sensible? Do A lot of these guys have a thing where they would dog whistle. They would sort of invite guests onto their shows where the guests were, say, anti-vaxxers or something. And in amongst their interview, while 90% of the time they were supportive of their guest, they would occasionally throw in a line that would, would say, oh, that, that would, would, would be contra the, the mm-hmm. anti-vax line, which their supporters could use as a, as a line to say, an see, excuse. he doesn't, yes, as an excuse. See, he didn't swallow the whole thing. He said this. But it paled into insignificance when 90% of the time they'd be agreeing with these nutters. So anyway, that's an interesting phenomenon where people have been captured by their audience and have gone further right. Joe Rogan was a good point. I mean, Mm. he had anybody and everybody on. Mm. And as long as he curated who he had on. So listening to the black astronomer, Neil... Uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Neil deGrasse Tyson. Listening to him talk unrestricted for three hours was great then he had some wellness psychologist who believed that there was no such thing as illness we were just eating badly Mm. and listening to her go on unrestricted for three hours was painful yeah 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 so yeah decoding the gurus has done a lot on on joe joe rogan as well so i'm sure yeah so anyway look at that that one so looking back so I've got all my show notes, dear listener, in one Word document. It's currently running at 2,738 pages. So You know you can split your Word document into multiple sub-documents. Well. Makes it quicker to load. This loads quick enough, surprisingly. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, it makes it easy to look back and find things. So I definitely if I want to write a book, it's all sitting there. Like When I think of things... I go, ah, did we talk about that once? And I can do a word search and find it. So that's a handy resource after seven years. Highlights over the times would be probably, I really enjoyed my arguments with the 12th man. That was good fun. Like I'd have a list of topics and it might be 20 topics long and I'd get to number two and that would be it by the the time I'd finished arguing with Paul. It was good in those days. We could argue and... It's when it got around to cave that it all fell apart. But uh, anyway, mm-hmm. lowlights would be – wasn't so much the podcast. It was the perjury allegation against Robin, which, by the way, dear listener, we have heard nothing about. So fingers crossed. It's now nearly four months, I guess, since all that happened. So you would have thought if they were going to do something, they would have asked to interview him by now. So – We'll give it a few more months and then hopefully... Be nice for them to tell you, though. Yeah, uh, give it a few more months and then we'll reach out to them and say, can you just confirm you're not going to do anything with this? And that would be nice to know that that's not hanging over our heads. So, so yeah, and I've enjoyed the interaction. Like the people in the chat room, John and Matthew and Mel and Eric and Chris and Bronwyn, of course, Greg, Tanya, all in the chat room. It's Even though I've never met most of you, it's been... I feel like I've met... Like Bromman in particular, I feel like I know Bromman based on her comments. So that's all the highlights. And just to finish off this self-indulgent little session, current obsessions are, looking forward, I'm quite interested in economics and history and the propaganda surrounding these two topics. So I wish I had read more about the history of power and economics. And because I think you need to understand what has gone on before in order to understand the current state of play and the best solutions, like understanding China, Taiwan, USA 
if you only look at what's happened in the last few months, you are totally missing the point. You have to go back 100 years at least to see how it all fits in and to understand it. So, so yeah, that's what I'm interested in doing is sort of delving into that and explaining those things. And it's an, you know, at least with this podcast, The Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove, we can delve into whatever topic we feel like at any particular time. It's not like mm-hmm. the podcast is called The Secular Agenda or something like that podcast where I am compelled to talk about one topic. I can We can scoot around, talk about anything that's of interest. Do you know much about the Armenian genocide at all? Only that the Young Turks were involved in some way. Right. The Young Turks... TV show was named after some people who were involved in the genocide. Right. And that Turkey doesn't admit that it ever happened, I yes. think. Yes, yeah. So I've been reading a book by Fisk about Middle East stuff and just reading about the Armenian genocide, 1.5 million people, equally as horrific and as intentional as the Jewish Holocaust, like just loading people onto trains and gassing them in mines and all sorts of just terrible wiping out of an ethnic minority. And I thought, just it's crazy that I did not know any of this before. And interesting that even... Yeah. I mean, I was vaguely aware of it, but, yeah, I think it was only because I was going, the Young Turks? Yeah. Why the Young Turks? And look that up. Yeah. And part of it is because Turkey refuses to acknowledge that there was a genocide... And it's such an important player in the Middle East that nobody wants to upset them because they all want them on their side. So they sort of pander to this Turkish propaganda line and effectively deny a Holocaust, which if it was the Jewish Holocaust, you know, you would be ostracised as a Holocaust denier. But because this is just a different Holocaust and it suits people, yeah, anyway... Well, we, we really don't talk about Stalin's genocide, do we? No. Or the Great Leap Forward. Mm. So We did talk a little bit once about China with different things there. So I just meant mm. as a society. Mm. We're, we're very aware of the, the Nazi Holocaust, but we haven't. Right. Even Pol Pot's yep. and Rwanda, mm. they're, they're, they're certainly not to the cultural front in the same way that... Western history, this, we're missing yeah. bits of... Yeah. So anyway, over time, over the next seven years, <laughs> we'll explore some of that, a bit more history, because it's interesting. Right, in the chat room, you're right, Bronwyn. Yes, Bronwyn. Apparently Hitler got quite a lot of his inspiration from the Armenian genocide. Indeed, he did a lot of the German sort of future generals were in that area and and were watching how to how to commit a genocide. So they did, in fact, get a lot of tips from it. So, yes. It's interesting. There's a Netflix series that was actually French. It's Arte called Einsatzgruppen, mm. which is all about the Nazi death squads going through Eastern Europe mm. and talking about how inefficient they were at the beginning and the attrition rate of the soldiers who were committing the atrocities. Just yeah, the the drinking, the insanity, saying that people just this this wholesale slaughter people cannot cope with, right? And that's why they industrialized. Okay, 
So it was. That's why Germany industrialised. What? What do you mean by the, the, the industrialised the slaughter? Ah, oh, industrialised the so, slaughter. So, Gas so them so you wouldn't have to look them. at them. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 And then you get the prisoners to do the clearing mm-hmm. out and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. So that's a review of 350 episodes in a nutshell. Seven years of my life. <laughs> Two of Joe's. We'll yeah. just keep going. Right. A little bit of economics, first of all. Do Australians pay too much income tax? And this is from an article, again, in the John Menadue blog. I did a word search on John Menadue in my document. It would come up with thousands of hits, I think. So Australians pay too much income tax, or so some argue. The Australian Financial Review's economics editor, John Kehoe, for example, has noted, Australians are paying more personal income tax as a share of government revenue than any other advanced economy except the high-taxing Scandinavian welfare state of Denmark. And the Australian Financial Review after the election said, too heavy reliance on taxing productive workers and businesses' earnings blunts incentives to work, save and invest. So Australian Financial Review, Australia paying more personal income tax is a share of government revenue than any other advanced economy except Denmark. And... Guess what? In this article, they've done the figures and you're going to see them. So it's. And, you know, I wouldn't disagree because the richest people in the country don't have much earned income. Yes, in terms of. Well, let's go through the figures and then see whether that statement, income tax that Australians are paying as a share of government revenue. So, first chart that's appearing on the screen is. So these figures are from 2019 because this is the last, well, the most recent year in which the OECD has complete statistics. And you will see that Australia ranks second amongst OECD member countries on personal income tax as a share of total taxes. Sure enough, there's Australia in red. The only one to the left of the line is Denmark. And so on the face of it, Australians are paying a high proportion of tax as income tax. So, and that's been the case for a long time. Australia has ranked second or third in 36 of the past 40 years on that statistic. But, and dear listener, this is the thing, there are lies, damned lies and statistics, if you like. Like, this is what we found during the whole COVID argument stuff, was the way that statistics could be massaged in whatever way you want to present them. You have to be really... I, I think as well the, the tax isn't necessarily what you need to be measuring. It's what you get for the tax. How much other things out of pocket do I have to pay for? You know, I have mm. to have medical insurance on top mm. because Medicare is underfunded. Yes. Yep. So I'm paying another whatever it is, 2,000, 3,000, however many thousand a year as medical insurance, mm. couldn't I pay that as a tax instead? Yeah. Well, there's all these factors come into it. So so that was just part of the picture, that, that straight statistic of income tax as a proportion. But overall, Australia's level of taxation as measured as a proportion of GDP is relatively low, 27.7%. 
to the OECD average of 33%. So this is level of taxation, all taxes, as a proportion of GDP. So that's the next chart. And we are at the lower end of the scale compared to other OECD countries. We're the 10th lowest taxing nation. So, so far we've showed two charts. Income tax is being extremely high, but overall tax being at the lower end. Right. But it's complicated. It's more complicated than that. Other nations have social security taxes. So Australia, New Zealand and Denmark fund social security from general government revenue. The other 35 OECD nations levy specific taxes on employers and employees to fund social security systems. So it's not called income tax, it's called social security levy, which is a mixture on employers and employees, which we don't even have. So don't we have a 1% Medicare tax? I think that's counted as personal because it's part of our tacked under our personal income tax. Okay. But so they're not counting that in this. They've counted it in the personal income tax. So if you take into account the fact that in other countries, either via the employer or directly by the employee, they're paying another tax, which is more or less like an income tax, but it's called something else, Social Security. Did you pay this overseas, Joe? Can you remember being charged... Income tax uh, I, and I, others taxes. I, yeah, but you were in a tax haven, yeah. weren't you? Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it was a flat twenty percent income tax. Yeah, that's but not it a good was social e- security. You're not a good example. No, no, won't, we won't use you. Was and, it Jersey, and Jersey wasn't it? was very prosperous. Yeah, Jersey yeah. was very prosperous at the time. No. Not so much now. You're not a good example for this. So, anyway, in these other countries, if you take into account the fact that in addition to income tax, they have these social security taxes, and you factor that into the equation, whereas previously we were second only to Denmark in terms of how much we pay, when you whack those taxes in, well, we're again back at the lower end of the scale in terms of adding up personal income tax and the social security taxes. Social security also covers your pension. Right, yep. Which which isn't means-tested in a lot of these countries. Yep. And in Australia, we have this compulsory superannuation. So you have to factor that into the equation. And let me just see here. Let me just see. What did I just put up on the chart was reliance on Social Security taxes. And after you've factored them in, you get this chart here where we're down at the lower end again in terms of taxes. But when you add in superannuation, because as you said, Joe, in those other countries, the social security tax goes towards retirement benefits, whereas we in Australia have compulsory superannuation, which goes to our retirement benefits. So if you factor in those figures, then guess what? We're still at the lower end of the scale. According to all this data, and the links are in the show notes and the calculations and how they arrive at it. So I guess the uh, the thing about that whole exercise, dear listener, is on the face of it, the Australian Financial Review was correct to say that we have extremely high personal income tax, second highest in the world. But unless you go through the exercise and 
and factor in all those other bits, you don't, you're not getting the true picture. So somebody with an agenda who wants taxes lowered can, can provide you with a, a baseline statistic that seems quite compelling in the initial circumstance. And then when you dig deeper and understand, then you arrive at a different conclusion. So it's just people with an agenda who are not who are disingenuous when they're arguing and misleading. And you've got to be on your guard for it, haven't you? When people say things and you think, I'm not sure if that's right, Google it and you'll, your intuition might be right. Like, just don't trust people. Don't trust people. Don't trust me. Have a look at these things and see if, just dig a bit deeper when things come, things like this come up. Lies, dams, lies and statistics. Yeah. It's a famous quote, isn't it? That's quite true. Mm-hmm. So, what are they saying in the chat room, Joe? Uh, Chris is saying that he was in Austria and was paying 50% income tax, mm-hmm. but the level of government support was much, much higher. Mm. And therefore, at the end of the day, he had more cash in hand. Yep. Yep. To spend on consumables, yep. such as holidays. Yep. And the thing is, when when these services are provided by the government, it's far more efficient than private enterprise. Mm-hmm. Example A, healthcare in America, where they basically say it's, you're on your it's own. It's the most expensive on the OECD. Indeed. So that's just the classic example where you would want to be paying higher taxes because it's the most efficient way to deliver a service that nearly everybody needs. So there was an article in the... I was going to say the the biggest benefit I saw or argued was there's a single negotiator with the drug companies. Mm. So rather than having 100 different insurance companies each negotiating their own deal, Mm. you just have the government that says, right, we would need this drug, we're going to pay... Apparently New Zealand has pays even less than we do mm-hmm. because of the way they negotiate their drug prices. Right. Yep. And yet and yet the drug companies are still happy to sell them medicines. Indeed. Whereas in America, like insulin is out of patent. It's one of the cheapest things to actually produce, but it's incredibly expensive and just keeps going up and up. So, so yeah. And there was an article in the rationale. I know I, ra- I bagged the rationale one or two episodes ago for the Douglas Murray episode, but there was one by their president – Along the lines of, hey, paying more taxes isn't a bad thing if you're getting a service for it. You know, that's, mm, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So that's so it's not only the mentality of are we the lowest or highest taxing country, but when you, when you look at happiness ratings and efficiencies of governments, you know the ones that are paying where people are paying the higher taxes are generally the happiest communities because these things are being supplied. Mm. Yes, Mel says, but privatisation of utilities is awesome. Telstra, energy outside Queensland, etc. I've got an article on all that, Mel, coming up. So, because I was looking, Mel, about, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago about, oh, I'm not so sure about the Hawke-Keating years and just the introduction of, you know, they sold off a lot of stuff. And, yeah, so I've got an article about that. That really kicked off a bit of neoliberalism in Australia, Hawke-Keating. For all the good stuff they did. Mm. Okay, still on economics in Australia, wages, 
because we know the prices are going to continue to rise and wages are not, they're doing some forecasting. And uh, there's a chart there. Real wages, that is workers' income that's been adjusted to take into account inflation, are going backwards. This is from Dr Greg Jericho, the Centre for Future Works Policy Director. Look, I'm pretty sure it's a left-wing organisation. But it gets worse than it sounds. As households struggle with rising cost of essentials, real disposable income is set to fall for months to come, sending workers back to what they were earning in real terms over a decade ago. The latest Reserve Bank statement estimates that real wages will continue to fall. That's the Reserve Bank estimating that wages will continue to fall until the end of next year, at which point they will be back to 2008 levels. There you go. And that's what that chart shows. That's the that's what we're looking at there. So by 6% effectively. Uh, yeah. So big drops in real wages. I did that article about, oh, I did that interview with Carl Fitzgerald about land banking. And he mentioned that there was going to be a report coming out. So that report is out. If you just Google Prosper Australia land banking report, you'll see it. Oh, hi, Shay. Shay likes the chart. Shay, aren't you glad you're out of Qantas? Holy smokes, that would be a tough organisation to be working for now. Anyway, Prosper Australia, that report is out about land banking. And you said to me, Joe, about Mm -hmm. that that book, Game of Mates. Yes. I think by Cameron Murray it turns out it's from. And he was like the co-author with Carl Fitzgerald on this Prosper Australia report. Okay. And he has put out an updated version of that book, Game of Mates. Now, I can't remember the name of the book, but it's out there, dear listener. Yes. You could find it, which is all about this whole idea of uh, land banking where they've looked at developers who have received approval for rezoning. They can sell the land but they wouldn't want to flood the market with hundreds of lots because that would just drive the price down. So they drip feed it out. And there's no regulation in the system to force developers to move land on that's ready to be sold. So, yeah. Which is interesting because I was reading about early 20th century squatters and they were given blocks of land to clear. Mm but they had to improve the land within five years or it was resumed. Mm. So it reverted back to the government. So maybe we need to do that. On these developers, it should be you can have this rezoning provided you release it in total within within a certain time Yeah, within five years, yeah. Yep. Or or it's compulsory purchased at whatever price for the government to then sell. yeah. Don't hold your breath waiting for it. I mean, these are simple ideas, aren't they? It's mm. not it's not hard to do. Yeah. In the chat room, they're talking about dental care. When I did the – I looked at a wealth tax on the Elizabeth Warren wealth tax if it was introduced in Australia, and it would only kick in on people who have got $500 million or more, and essentially you tax them at 2%. 2 or 3% for their wealth above that. And you can fund dental as part of Medicare and have plenty of change left over. And I think the Greens are talking about that sort of stuff. Well, if you didn't buy submarines, you could probably fund dental. Indeed. Yep. Everything's, everything can be measured by submarines. Yeah. Mm. 
Yeah. Right, because we had 12 submarines initially at $50 billion and it was 4.16 per submarine. And it blew out to $80 billion, But, yeah, for a long while there, Scott and I were measuring budget materials in terms of submarines. And who knows, once we buy secondhand nuclear subs from the UK or the US, what that's going to blow out to. Yeah. I don't think they're going to sell them to us. I think I've got a suspicion Australia's going to build their own subs here. Apparently the Collins class were built here, and sure it had a hiccup at one point, like it made a lot of noise, but they were able to fix it. Sort of was a success story of building a submarine in Australia. Building a nuclear submarine? Well, no, they won't build a nuclear, and that's the point. Because they won't be able to build nuclear, they'll build a non-nuclear submarine, fingers crossed. That'll be a test of this new government. Mm. Solar-powered. Mm. <laughs> Joe, do you have a BMW? Strangely enough, no. <laughs> BMW, according to The Verge, is now selling subscriptions for heated seats. Subscriptions for heated seats in a number of countries. This is the latest example of the company's adoption of microtransactions for high-end car features. A monthly subscription to heat your BMW front seats costs roughly $18 a month with options to subscribe for a year, $180, three years, $300. We'll pay for unlimited access to warm seats for $415. This reminds me of the right to repair Yes. In America. I don't, have, have you seen any of the documentaries? No, I've never seen a documentary uh, it, on it. Okay. You, obviously, Apple is the big one that most people think of, but actually the big driving force is farmers because the combine harvesters are all locked down and you need specific computers to be able to do any servicing on them. Right. And they're saying they have a half-million-dollar combine that is useless unless they're paying Massey Ferguson, not Massey Ferguson, who, the big John Deere. Yeah. Un unless they're paying a John Deere licensed tech to come out and fix it, mm. they can't do any work on it. Yep. And they're suing for the right to repair so they can fix these. Yeah, they've already spent half a billion to buy the thing. And, and eighth of and the submarine. Going, <laughs> yeah. And, and they, they can't even change out the spark plugs without the computer going, nope, not allowed. Yeah. Yeah. I saw something on Twitter where this lady said, she had a printer, and it just flashed up mm. on the screen, software expired, goodbye. And the, there was nothing wrong with the printer. It was working perfectly fine, but the software just decided, time's up. We're, we're calling time on this. Planned obsolescence. Yeah. So back to the BMWs, it's not exactly clear when BMW started offering this feature as a subscription or in which countries, but a number of outlets this week reported spotting its launch in South Korea. In the case of heated seats, for example, BMW owners already have all the necessary components, but BMW has simply placed a software block on their functionality that buyers then have to pay to remove. And they make the point here that for some software features that might lead to ongoing expenses for the car maker, like automated traffic camera alerts, for example, charging a subscription seems more reasonable, but that is not an issue for heated seats. Ah, 
we're going to start introducing laws to stop people like BMW charging subscription for hardware that's already existing. They're probably looking at games manufacturers. Yeah. They will sell you this game mm-hmm. and then we'll make it a grind, but you can shortcut the grind by buying this value pack. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Chris Turner says... Yes, I agree, Bronwyn. Chris says, isn't that button on the dash for turning on the heated da- heated seats? I'm guessing it's somewhere in the menu system, but I'm sure that you could run a 12-volt from the battery straight to the heater. Mm. Don't get me started on 12-volt. While I was on holiday, we were up at Bingle Beach, just at, just north of Mission Beach. Went to the pub. Trivia night. And one of the questions was... What battery would you typically find in a motor vehicle? And I said, oh, I think it's pretty sure it's 12 volt. And the ladies at the table, my wife and her mm-hmm. sisters, were like, no, it doesn't sound right. And they went for 24, 24 volt. Lost that Only question. if it's a truck. <laughs> Trucks are 24 volt, are they? Yeah. Well, it was a question about cars. Anyway, we came second, dear listener, in the trivia. You'd be pleased to know. Six volts if it's a motorbike. <laughs> I really needed you. I really needed you there. Bronwyn, yeah, your, Bronwyn's comment was, I'm just wondering whether BMW owners deserve our sympathy. <laughs> a friend of mine just sold his Mercedes and bought a BMW and was sorely disappointed. Was he? Yes. Is the cold seats? It wasn't the cold seats, no. He was just saying it, 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 it was a lot more plasticky than he was used to. Oh, right. Okay. I've got to put a video up that I forgot to put up. Let me just find this, get that ready to go. So let's switch now from domestic economic matters to foreign affairs. In particular, we're going to do a combination now of Nancy Pelosi visiting Taiwan and Ukraine. Because after all, there's one common denominator with both these issues, America. And I'm really sorry, dear listener, but I'm actually going to play something from Tucker Carlson. Like, this is terrible, I know. Like, forgive me. Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. It is X years since my last confession. These are my sins. All right. Catholic in you always comes out, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. I used to make up sins. I mean, you're sitting there thinking, oh, I've got to say something. I'm supposed to be here. I stole a rubber off somebody. That's what you used to do. And in retrospect, if you got out of the confession box with three Hail Marys and six Our Fathers, you're doing well. Okay. Did you actually say them, though? I would have. Otherwise, I would have gone to hell, Joe. Okay. Let's play some of what – this is – Douglas McGregor, retired U.S. Army colonel. ...will administration in living memory. We don't have anyone that qualifies as a statesman. Statesmanship involves advancing American interests at the least cost to the American people. None of that is in play here. We're dealing with a group of posers, people who are posturing. Posturing is not statesmanship. And the American people need to understand something that no one has bothered to tell them. That during World War II, Taiwan was the unsinkable aircraft carrier of the Imperial Japanese Armed Forces. All the major invasions of China were launched from Taiwan. Beijing will not allow Taiwan to become 
uh, a garrison state for American armed forces or Japanese armed forces or any foreign power. And if they think that we are going to ally ourselves with Taiwan, if they think we are going to intervene to defend that island in the event of a dispute, then we will be at war with China for the reasons that I just outlined. And we are not prepared for that. We are grossly overstretched. We don't have the logistical infrastructure. And frankly, there's an old adage that everyone should remember. A ship's a fool to fight a fort. You have to fight China from the sea. We can't win that. China can absorb everything we throw at it. And the Chinese are happy to sit there, let us travel thousands of miles to reach them, and then sink us. This, I, I, I don't know why every show on TV is not covering this right now. This seems like one of the craziest things that's happened in my lifetime. Do you have any speculation and guess as to why the Biden administration would want this? Well, the Biden administration and its predecessors, frankly, treated everything that the Russian government said for the last 15 years about Ukraine with complete contempt. They're repeating that process. We see how well that's worked out in Ukraine. The Russians yeah. were always serious. Hundreds of thousands of lives have been lost in this war in Ukraine that we should have acted quickly to stop. Now we're provoking the Chinese over an, over an issue that is at least as strategically important to them. That's beyond belief. All right, let's, I promise you, no more Tucker Carlson for another 350 episodes. Look, good points in that is they're not going to allow a garrison state to be set up on Taiwan. This is sort of part of their fear of Pelosi being there. They do not want to normalise America setting stuff up in Taiwan. And the other really important part, and I've been getting this from various other sources as well, is, and we've mentioned this before as well, it's really, really tricky to do a naval invasion of a country and... You're incredibly but vulnerable. Eng- England managed it. Mm. Which invasion are you thinking of there when they crossed the channel oh. on D-Day? Or, no, no, or, no. The, 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 the first the, and second opium wars. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in modern warfare. Right. Yes. In modern warfare, where you can just lob bombs from a great distance, if you can just be on the ground and firing stuff off over the horizon at the ships that are coming. And, you know, just aircraft carriers and whatnot, they're just sitting ducks for all sorts of submarines and and all the rest of it, and they can be just gone in an instant. There's no way America could stop China if it wanted to. Invade? No. Yeah. They just couldn't do it. So they're just kidding themselves. When, When people say... We've got to be prepared to fight China over Taiwan and lose. You've just got to add that to it. It's just not possible. Travelling on water with navies and armies is not going to work against a half-decent opponent, and China's more than half-decent. The question is whether China could take Taiwan without completely decimating the island. Correct. They, They could just keep lobbing bombs on it and not but then what would be the point of taking it if if it's yeah. been completely leveled so it's just storing you know stirring up a hornet's nest that didn't need to be stirred and so yeah just by the way i saw a comment as part of that video thing which said 
He was half right. The Imperial Japanese Army used Manchuria as another staging point to attack China. So I think that's true. I think they were coming through Manchuria as well as from Taiwan. So bear that in mind. But that was that. I mean, she got a lot done, Pelosi, according to this Twitter person, was she stimulated cyber attacks. She got thousands of businesses banned from exporting to China. She shut down important cross-strait communication tool Weibo. She elicited mainland military exercises and stimulated an imminent temporary blockade. Like, it was just a little bit reminiscent of Ukraine in that everything she did was just going to be harmful to the Taiwanese. I know some Chinese expats over here mm. and apparently they watch Taiwanese news right. to get their to get their Chinese updates because yeah. it's it's less censored, it's less skewed mm-hmm. than what they see for coming out of China. And what did they say about this? I've not spoken to them about this, but it was just interesting that they get their news from Taiwan rather than China, the expats. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the resolution of this whole thing is just to keep encouraging China to to become as democratic as possible and to be respecting human rights and just be a good government so that at the end of the day, when they eventually take Taiwan, it will be... Not such a bad thing. I mean, you can either just shut people out of the world economy and just make people even more belligerent and send them in the direction you don't want them to go, or you can try and gather them into the fold and and try and work together. So that's not the story. Or you can buy oil from them whilst they export their very virulent form of religion around the world. Indeed. That's right. You really need something. You will ignore all that other stuff, indeed. Yeah, exactly. With a fist bump and a burning penis chakra. Yep. Yes. Watley enjoyed that. Good on you, Watley. He sent me a message, laughed out loud, thought that was a good one. That was from Caitlin Johnson. I've got a fair bit of her stuff to quote here. It doesn't quite fit into this bit, but I'll, I'll mention it here. As part of one of her things I was reading, there's an old joke. A Russian and an American get on a plane in Moscow to, and get to talking. The Russian says he works for the Kremlin and he's on his way to learn American propaganda techniques. And the American says, what American propaganda techniques? Exactly, the Russian replies. (laughs) I thought it was good. Oh, and this is the other thing. So Pelosi, while she's over there, at a news conference with Taiwanese president, Pelosi was asked what she could offer Taiwan to offset possible costs the island would incur, including economic retaliation from China, as a consequence of her visit. I.e., you're here causing all this shit. What can you offer in return for the mess you've made here? She answered her visit was part of a broader US effort to have better economic exchanges with Taiwan, and she said, significant Taiwanese businesses are already planning to invest in manufacturing in the United States. And this blog, Moon Over Alabama, says, essentially, you will get sanctioned while we will steal your prime advantage in chip manufacturing. It's not exactly an uplifting message. That's what you were saying. Yeah, sounds about right. She said a few other... trade agreements. Yeah. It's just like Ukraine. America is going to fight Russia to the last Ukrainian. 
Mm. And they're now proposing to fight China to the last Taiwanese. Just don't fight to the last Australian. Ukrainians were like us. Taiwanese aren't. No. they, They don't count. Yeah. That's true. Caitlin Johnson article, I'll put it in the show notes, was essentially saying, look, Russia was saying these are red lines regarding Ukraine. Don't cross this red line. And the West ignored them. And China is saying in relation to Taiwan, don't cross this red line. Have been saying for 70 years, don't cross this line. Yep. And... For all those people out there who say, well, we just can't let China bully us and we can't let them get away with it. Well, the answer is you're going to have to because you can't stop them. You're going to have to do it through diplomacy and not through hardcore military action because you just can't do it. Right. There was one other thing that Pelosi said. Basically, she said, oh, I've, I've got a connection with China. And they said, what do you mean? This isn't like one of these press conferences. And she said, oh, when I was a kid, we used to talk about at the beach, if you keep digging a hole deep enough, you'll end up in China. And so I feel like I've got this connection with China. (laughs) Seriously. We were told that too, which is interesting, that both Americans and the British would dig to China. That's right. What's even more amazing is that somebody in her position would use that as an anecdote or a in a press conference well, as a means of ingratiating um, yourself with, with them. It's like Sarah Palin with her, oh, I, I get on with the Russians, uh, yeah, I can see them from my back door or whatever, That's it. wasn't it? If I stand on my tippy-toe, I can see, I can see Russia. <laughs> Joe, you, you put me onto a website called Ground News. Mm, I was impressed by that. I'd not seen it before. Mm. Ground News, ground.news looks at news articles and analyses where they've been reported, whether it's been in left-wing or right-wing media and sort of... Or centre media. Yes, and sort of does this analysis of news reports. So one of the interesting things was you could... They had a, a thing on their blind spot. So if you, say, traditionally look at left-wing media, and you know you do it will say, okay, then you've probably missed in your blind spot this article that, for example, appears in right-wing media but doesn't appear in left-wing media. So, And that was where I got the Nancy Pelosi one about digging a hole to China. So, so yeah, so her connection with China was reported in seven sources that were declared as right-wing sources but did not appear in any left or centre sources. Yeah, so so if you are worried that you're in a bubble or you've got a blind spot, you could hop on there and uh, and find things that will appear in the other media. Or you could watch Tucker Carlson. I, I have seen the whole Johnny Depp thing has shown me the inherent bias. And, yeah, it's got me second-guessing now as to what else is as blatantly biased. Watching watching things happening in the courtroom mm-hmm. and then seeing that across the whole of the left-right, doesn't matter, news articles coming out, and I'm going, that isn't what happened. Mm. You know, I was watching the live stream and what you're reporting isn't what happened. Yep. And you're going, what else are they bullshitting us on? 
Yes. Yep. Yep. And and is it is it this because they have a slant? Is it because they're being lazy and they're just picking up a press release that an interested party has handed to them and just copying it? Yep. Have they been selective uh, you know, in their quoting and just picking things out, like the financial review just did with personal income tax levels, one statistic without the context around it? Mm. Yeah, it's, you know, has has this been the IPA handed them a press release and they've just copied and rewritten what the IPA have handed them? Yeah. That's what and, start- and, yeah, usually you get the left-right and, and they balance each other out at, to an extent. Mm. But there have been some things where it doesn't matter which one, they're all got their own slant. Mm. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm starting to go, I, I do want to hear dissenting voices. Mm. Yep. You've just got to recognise where is this coming from. So this is what I used to argue with Paul about when he kept quoting The Spectator and I said, I've seen too many articles from The Spectator that were disingenuous, that cherry-picked one side of the argument and didn't provide the context and the other side of the argument or were just completely lies. So I couldn't read anything in that magazine without thinking, am I just reading complete bullshit? I don't trust what's in here. And Mm -hmm. I know with the John Menadue blog, I've never felt that except with one particular author was Ramesh Thakur. And I can just remember reading and going, this just... He just stood out like a sore thumb in that blog and I haven't seen him for a long, long time. I think he disappeared from there. So, yeah, first thing when you read an article is where is this coming from and who is the individual writing it? And, okay, then start reading it. I mean, if it's if it's the Courier-Mail slagging off Palaszczuk, yes. You're going, yeah, serious. A vanity fair with Donald Trump. I mean, I go through my Apple News feed mm-hmm. in the morning and there's a, a, you know, Trump has been caught doing this. And I go, that's vanity fair, isn't it? Sure enough, it's vanity fair. Yeah, you get a feeling for the style as well, don't you? Yeah. Mel in the chat room said, my dad always said, if you're at the bottom of a hole, stop digging. And she also says, I don't necessarily want dissenting voices. Sometimes I just want the damn facts. Mm. That's why you're here, isn't it, Mel? For just the damn yeah, the facts. Fa- <laughs> the facts according to who? <laughs> yep. Just the facts that you can trust. Yeah. Ah, yeah, so anyway, that statement, here it was from Pelosi. She's 82-year-old Pelosi. 82. What is she? Said in response to the question regarding Chinese aggression. When is I was she not a- Speaker of the House? Yeah. Oh, okay. When I was a little girl, I was told at the beach, if I dig a hole deep enough, we would reach China. So we've always felt a connection there. Makes sense? Yes. Yep. Okay. And if you dig a hole that's one metre by one metre by one metre, how much earth is in it? In the hole? No earth. You've Mm. just dug a hole. That's a trick question. Exactly. (laughs) Didn't fall for that one. No, yeah. I'm impressed. <laughs> so, Joe, if you ever get elected to Parliament and you have to swear allegiance to the Queen, you can do what Lydia Thorpe did and bear a true allegiance to the colonising Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II and be reprimanded by the Speaker and be forced to read it properly. What do you think of that? Well, I came over here, you know, as part of the colonies, 
to teach you all how to speak English properly. <laughs> so I, I have no problems with an allegiance to the Queen. I, I understand the Republican movement. The question is how, what, why, where. I'm not completely anti-monarchy. I, I think there's a value. There's a va- I, Yeah, I mean, I understand it's a foreign country, but it's still the Commonwealth. It's still there are ties, although I think they become less relevant as each year goes by. Hmm. You're more of a traditionalist than I would have pegged you for, Joe. Hmm. Yeah, I'm first generation, though. Yep. Okay. Got to get your daughter so, on here and see what she thinks. Yeah. I, I'm sure she would have different views. Yeah. You know, I uh, good on Lydia Thorpe. It reminds me a little bit of when George W. Bush was in Parliament, I think, and the Greens leader just was there and just yelled out at him that he was a warmongering bastard or something, you know, like that, and eventually got ejected out of the Parliament. Like, it takes a lot of guts to sort Who of... Who threw a shoe at him? I don't, I don't know if it was the Greens leader or not, but... Somebody threw a shoe at him. I don't yeah. know if it was in the Australian Parliament, but... It takes a lot of guts in a crowded room to to just rock the boat. Mm-hmm. On the aeroplane back, there was this guy two rows back tapping away on his laptop and he had his headphones on and probably didn't realise that the sound was coming out of his laptop as he was like firing away and killing stuff on his laptop game. I said to my wife, what's that? And, you know, we're putting up for it, with it for a minute or two. It was like, oh, I can't bear this. This is just driving me crazy. And everybody, you know, we're looking around and everybody's thinking this is just crazy. But nobody was, like, wanting to do anything about it. To go, mate, yeah. turn it down. I pressed the button, called the hostess and said there's a guy back there. She was really good. Sorted it out. Thanks me afterwards. Mm. That was my Lydia Thorpe moment. Okay. <laughs> anyway. Oh, Shay, Shay, might have, Shay might have a comment to make about that. Shay, you know, in aeroplanes, people tapping away on their laptops and, and making noise. Anyway, very inconsiderate. Yeah. Oh, she says that's why we were there. That's true, Shay. Lydia thought, good on her. Like, okay, she made a point, I think, and drew, drew attention to it. And so she was told you are required to recite the oath as printed on the card. And she then did so and afterwards tweeted, sovereignty never ceded. So anyway, I haven't always agreed with everything Lydia Thorpe's done, but on that one, I'll Thank give her you, four Anne. marks. What's that? Anne says that she was thrown at John Howard on Q&A. Ah, okay. Eric says, only had your hand in the air for a second, Trevor, to press the button, hey? Probably better to call professionals. <laughs> That's right. They're not going to escalate it. Yeah. Joe, over the years, if you'd have said to me seven years ago, 350 episodes mm-hmm. ago, that I would spend so much time talking about ethical issues surrounding footballers, I would have said bullshit. How could footballers give rise to ethical dilemmas? Their continued maltreatment of women <laughs> off the pitch? Their visibility as part of the community, the yeah, fact possibly. that they maybe don't necessarily represent the norm in our community, particularly given there's a lot of Polynesian rugby league players, Christian, possibly heavily Christian. A, a bunch of large burly blokes taking a shower together after the match. 
yep. soaping each other up. <laughs> I think they jump a nice path. But we've talked a lot on this podcast, dear listener, as you would know about Israel Folau, for example. We talked about taking the knee. We've talked about prayers at halftime with footballers. We've probably even talked maybe, I think, about footballers singing the national anthem at some point. I don't know. Whether they were obliged to, whether they should be forced to, whose freedoms, responsibilities, how these all weigh up against each other. And it's actually quite interesting. Like I think I put in the, in the ad for this podcast that, that footballers are kind of like a, the trolley problem. You know, you know the trolley problem where switch the lever mm-hmm. and you'll instead of killing one person, you'll kill four people. But blah blah, and then you know, okay, it's, it's not a trolley, but it's a fat person on a bridge, and you can push them off, and you know, and you have all these other scenarios, and you can then argue endlessly about what is the morally correct thing to do in different circumstances. And I think we've, I think we've reached that point with footballers where you could possibly have longer discussions by the time you've dealt with taking the so knee. So should you push a footballer <laughs> off a bridge? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> to yeah. stop a gay. A, 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 a transgender train from crashing into a cliff. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's just a, I wouldn't say a minefield. What's the other thing? It's the opposite. It's like a, it's a, it's a, you can harvest all of these ethical dilemmas from footballers. So the latest one is the Manly players, the Manly football club decided it would make a minor alterations to its jersey to include sort of a rainbow colours as part of a inclusivity agenda and recognising that rugby league no doubt has LGBTIQ sort of people in the community. Somebody in head office thought that was a good idea and Nobody spoke to the players and when seven Christian Polynesian players found out about it, they said, we're not going to wear that jersey. And for that particular game, they actually sat down and didn't, they, didn't, they weren't members of the team. In fact, I don't even think they went to the match because it was considered a security risk. So I think they just didn't even go to the, to the Oval to even watch. I think that was the plan anyway. So, Yeah. Pelted to death by large purple dildos. Yeah. So where do we stand on this one in the chat room, dear listener, dear chat roomy, professional footballers? Are they entitled to say, no, I'm not going to wear that jersey? Should they be paid for their time off? Should football clubs be doing this without getting the consent of all of the team, the people actually wearing the jersey? I see it as an unpaid sponsor, mm. and surely it's the same as any other form of sponsorship. Mm-hmm. If the club has decided that that is a pro, no, pro bono sponsorship, mm. what would happen? Are there terms of conditions that say you can choose not to wear a sports bet advert on your mm. if it goes against your religious beliefs? Because there has been times when I think Sonny Bill Williams was against either alcohol or gambling or some other advertisement 
that was on the jersey and it was either covered up or something with tape or or some arrangement was made to to cover it up so that he wasn't wearing that obvious logo of either an alcohol or gambling sponsor, kind of like that. So, well, where to begin with this? So, and we'll come back, back to the essential thing that's being undertaken here. So, ah, jerseys in general. I mean, if it is an alcohol or a gambling sponsor that is putting the logo on the shirt and you decide you don't want to wear that jersey, then I think as a professional footballer these days entering into this market, you have to say there are going to be things on the jersey that I can't control and I might be forced to wear things that I don't want to wear. But if I want the big money, and this is where the money comes from, then I'm going to have to wear it. Or put it in your contract that you're not going to wear it and see whether you get a contract. Like if it is so important to you that you do not want to wear any gambling or alcohol advertisements, for example, on a jersey, then when you sign up with a club, say, I see at the moment you don't have it, if you decide to take on a sponsor like that, I either can leave the club or wear a, a different jersey and negotiate it because I think you just got to expect that there might be some business that you don't like and in the absence of that agreement, you're going to be lumped with it because I don't think wearing a jersey is seen as a personal endorsement of what's on the jersey. Like everybody knows that footballers are just whacking on the jersey that's given to them. A little bit different to taking the knee or saying prayers at half time. <laughs> like if you participate in taking the knee or saying the prayer, I think people would say, well, you personally are in favour of that particular thing. So you should, might want should, to abstain if you are not in favour of that particular thing. Should the kit even contain any form of advertising? The rugby league jersey. And any any sports, yeah. Well. Or should it just be the same colours and leave the advertising to around the edge of the field? Yeah, yeah. and I mean, that's an option. But they would, if they said to the players, Got this great solution. You guys don't have to wear sponsorship stuff on your jersey. Unfortunately, instead of five hundred thousand dollars a year, you're only going to get two hundred thousand. Is that all okay? <laughs> I think most of them would say, "I want to wear the logo." Like, Screw that's, my morals. That that is part of all this. Is that if you're going to take the money, and the money genuinely comes from that sponsorship logo, which it does, if you're going to take the money, then you've got, to, you've got to do the thing that generates the money. You can't have both. You can't say, I want the money, but I don't want to do the thing that generates the money. That's where I sort of look at these mm -hmm. things. So obviously, prayers at half time doesn't generate money. Taking the knee doesn't generate money. It's nothing to do with that. So, And you're quite entitled to say, I'm not going to participate in that. I'm a footballer. 
Wearing a rainbow on your shirt doesn't generate the money, though, does it? Well, good question. Good point. Good point. But Un- unless, gets... unless you're virtue signaling to a group of advertisers. Yes, there's some incidental virtue signaling money. And, but there's also the point that whatever's on the jersey, it's not taken to be a personal endorsement. Like if I was a professional footballer, example i'm put in a time machine and they add 40 kilos of muscle to me and and <laughs> and half my speed of running 100 meters and they Some say anabolic steroids you'd be fine and here, here you go trevor you can join the nrl and there's a fair chance that there's going to be a christian hillsong advertisement on the on the jersey I guess if I put myself in that position somehow, you know, I would I wouldn't join a club that had that as their sponsor. I'd find some other one. But if the sponsorship came up while I was there, I'd say continue with this, and I'm going to leave at the end of my contract, and then I would just wear the Hillsong jersey for the remainder of my contract, and then go at the first opportunity, and. At the end of the day, people would all know my position on Hillsong and whether I supported it or not. I don't think my moral position would be, I wouldn't be seen as a hypocrite or, or whatever. I'd just be just dealing with the circumstance as it arrives. So that's what I say Maybe, to the Polynesian yeah, footballers. You're, you're not worried about burning in hell for supporting that is, Hillsong. That is true, yeah. But, so I think you can be morally secure and say, I'm locked into this thing. I'll put up with it while I am, and then I'm just going to leave and do go somewhere else. They've been going off the chat room. Mormon Footballers League. Yeah. They've been going off the chat room. It's really hard to read those sorts of comments while you're trying to think about these things. So I'll just read one thing. Good point about jerseys, Trevor. Thank you, Bronwyn. That's that's all I need to read. So, Okay. um, Oh, and Eric. Exactly, Trevor. So in this case, it was one game. There we go. Some people are agreeing. That's good to know. John did point out that paid soccer players are having problems with personal sponsorship conflicting with club sponsorship. Yep. And that's why you choose a personal sponsor that's not going to conflict with your club sponsor. But if the club changes sponsorship later. Yep. That's why you, when you sign the contract, have a clause that says if you engage a club sponsor, that is in contradiction with my personal sponsor, then I'm entitled to cancel my contract with you and go and kick a football with somebody else. These are the sorts of things that you have to do if you feel so strongly about it. So, And I'm sure these contracts would have stuff like that at that level, particularly professional soccer players. So, yeah, maybe I've missed my calling. Maybe I should be writing rugby league player maybe. contracts. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So you just got to look at these things and, yeah, if it's on a jersey, nobody thinks that that is you particularly advocating and supporting what's on your jersey. It's like when you're standing for prayers. It doesn't mean you actually are in support of the prayer unless you're actually saying the prayer. This is all different. If we're talking about prayers on a football field and prayers in a parliament. Yeah, because you're hmm. compelling people to participate. Yeah. Oh, enough of all that. I've sort of canvassed some of the issues. Yeah, I think that's enough of that. 
Good gallantry. Yeah, you're, you're not going on to Bob Catter. Uh, he's persecuted. He's on my list here. Oh, uh, I'm sure he's on. I'm pretty sure I'm going to get to him. Okay. Yep, he's on here. First of all, did you hear about in New, uh, this is from the New York Times, and it was a guy in Brooklyn, a bishop in Brooklyn, was in the middle of delivering his sermon, and he and his wife were robbed at gunpoint of more than $1 million worth of jewellery at a Brooklyn church. (laughs) That's not bad, is it? Mm. You're in church and uh, you're wearing $1 million worth of jewellery. I hadn't realised it was the million dollars worth of jewellery you were pointing out. I thought it was the getting robbed in church. Yeah. So, (laughs) well, it's both, isn't it? Yeah. In the middle of delivering his sermon, robbed robbed at gunpoint. In the middle of his sermon, begging for money to pay for the poor people who were starving. Yep. Lamour M. Um, Whitehead. Do you, do you get Caritas adverts on Facebook? Do I get what? Adverts? Caritas, the Catholic Church's agent. Oh, yeah. No, I don't. I, I get spammed by them about, you know, a mere $10 could save this person's eyesight in Africa or whatever it is. Uh-huh. And you go, if, if only there was a, a large organization that could possibly sell off some of its assets to pay for this mm. oh wait you're part of the catholic church aren't you mm. yeah there's one bishop there we go in the chat room eric says it was live streamed and ricky says god moves in mysterious ways he uh, does yeah if you've read silence of the lambs hannibal letter yeah collected church collapses church collapses Yes. What's a church collapse? As in earthquakes, the buildings falling down on the parishioners. He, 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 he saw that as an irony that, you know, these people were in oh, right. God's building oh, he, praying to God. He collected instances of it as a record. Yes. Right. Okay. Yes. Yep. Or when a lightning bolt strikes a church and burns it down, probably. He collected those as well. But, but it was, you know, the, the yeah. parishioners being killed whilst praying for redemption. Yep. Oh, what an uncaring God. Yep. We previously were talking about Chris about rum, were we? Was Chris the guy who does the brewing in the chat room? (laughs) I don't remember. I do remember somebody talking about rum. I pride this podcast on, 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 on tackling a wide range of topics in the time that we have, Joe. Like sometimes we hit 30 topics in two hours. Chris in the chat room, on a side note, I started making nice pirate rum with 50 kilograms of banana, 10 of pineapple, 15 kilos of molasses, and 25 kilos of dextrose last month. You're right, Chris, that is a side note. Mm. Yep. It's one of the best rums you'll ever taste. Did you have a though? Yeah. This is the question. It's, it's two years later, it's one of the best rums you'll ever taste, Joe. I'll take his word for that. <laughs> I actually watched some interesting YouTube videos on making rum. Right. And how you keep the dregs of your distillate behind and leave it ferment. And and over time it just gets funkier and funkier and really okay. adds flavour to the rum. Okay. A bit like a sourdough in that it gets mm. more flavour as it goes along. Yep. <laughs> uh, That's when you'll be due. <laughs> Is there something you need to tell us, Shailene? All right. Very good. Still still on religious matters, episode 350, the whole John Barillaro thing, no doubt everyone's across it. 
What a corrupt government they've got down there in New South Wales. They're, they're making the, the J.B. Jockey-Peterson government look good is what they're doing down there at the moment. But I saw this thing. Amy Brown, the New South Wales public servant who appointed John Barillaro for the lucrative New York job, says she models her management style on Jesus and is confident God can use her to influence people in the work she does. Just to add to the misery of what is New South Wales government. Dear listener. That's what Jesus would have wanted. Yeah. We've been talking for nearly seven years on how the evangelical Christian groups have been basically taking a leaf out of the Tea Party playbook in America and have overtaken the branches in the Liberal Party in Australia. And here's an article from The Age. John Fain, former ABC Mornings presenter down there, talking about how Matthew Guy and Mitch Catlin, his former chief of staff, involved in a nefarious thing down there with asking for donations and donations never made, but pretty ugly stuff. Bronwyn's no doubt across all of it, being in Victoria. And the opposition leader argued there was no problem because the proposed side hustle never went ahead, which is like Guy Fawkes saying that he only plotted to blow up Britain's parliament. So it's all okay. Anyway, some Liberals, so this is Victoria, some Liberals believe their once dominant party must better reflect Christian right values modelled by American evangelist politicians. They believe the future is to inhabit the space vacated by the collapse five years ago of the Family First experiment. Three recent pre-selections in Victoria are evidence they are winning the internal battle. In the upper house, southeastern metro seat, Anne-Marie Hermans will replace Gordon Rich Phillips. Hermans was a Family First candidate. That's not a good start, as you see there. And hails from the Assembly of God. I've never seen her, I've never met her, I've never read anything other than this, but I've got an image about her already, Joe. That's just a cynical, I don't know. Is, is this different from Fred Nile's? don't know, just a female version of Fred Nile is what I've got in my head. So that's Anne-Marie Hermans. In Western Metro, Moira Deeming won the spot on the Liberal ticket to replace the banished religious firebrand Bernie Finn although she says some of the same controversial views that led to Finn being expelled. So a crazy Christian Finn got expelled, replaced by promising Christian... Crazy crazy Christian. Yeah. That's two. But most telling of all was the contest in the Eastern Victorian regional seat. After a remarkably efficient recruitment drive, Gippsland chiropractor... Alarm bells ringing already, Joe. Exactly. (laughs) And City Builders Church figure, Renee Heath, won a tight contest against competent and sensible sitting Liberal moderate and lawyer Catherine Burnett Wake by a single vote. Senior moderate Liberal... Go on. I was just thinking, what happened to Danny? What's his name? Catch the Fire Ministries, Victoria? I don't know. 
Let's just get through these three. Senior, yeah, okay. Senior moderate, moderate liberals concede the religious takeover they've been resisting for 10 years is succeeding. Some speculate on abandoning their party to the insurgents and starting again. Will the Liberal Party survive or are we watching it collapse? Daniel Andrews can't can believe his luck. Ah. Bronwyn, what's going on in Victoria? You, people down there used to laugh at us. Hicksville's up here in Queensland. I guess you've got Danny, Dan Andrews. Yeah. Danny somebody. He was a Sri Lankan migrant who was catch the fire ministries and I think eventually his church got banned from mixing politics and religion. They they lost their oh, okay. tax exempt status. The worst possible thing that could happen to a church. Yeah, yeah, Bronwyn knows Danny <laughs> Nalia. So there you have it. Three they're just in disarray down there. They need really good candidates because they're just obviously fucked. And all that can happen is they just get more of these Christian nutters because they've dominated the party. I think well, they have I, to give I in. What you, I think what you get is the teals. Yeah. And I think liberals, I think it's a bit like a few things now. I think the, I think they're talking about the board of the ABC – of completely disbanding it and starting again. And I think things like the AAT, the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, so stacked with so many liberal appointees that they're going to, I think, just close down the AAT and start with something else because it's just going to be too hard to get rid of these people. So I think the liberals will to consider abandoning the Liberal Party. The problem is start up a new party, but how do you stop these same yeah, the people? voters. Well, how do you stop the, you know, what will happen? Uh, how do you stop these people taking, taking over the it party? over again as well? Like they, they might stay with the Liberal Party. It continues you, you to. S- you stand as a loose alliance of independence. Hmm. Yeah. I, I I don't know how they will avoid being re-infiltrated when the Liberal Party completely crashes and the remnants of these Christian groups decide, well, what's the next best Conservative Party? We'll go to this new Conservative Party and we'll infiltrate in. I don't know how you would stop them. It's not just the big Liberals who are convinced mm. that they're too progressive. Mm. Yeah. I mean, isn't that, isn't that why they elected Dutton as opposition leader? That was the whole thing post-election, wasn't it? It was Sky News and all those were saying the problem was they weren't right-wing enough. Not yes. Good, solid Christian values. They moved the Liberal Party under Morrison was too good, woke Good, solid and Christian left. values of an atheist. They were too woke Peter and they were too left. Oh, God. Okay, Bob Catter's not happy. Prayers in Parliament. There was a thing where in the Senate, I think it was the Labor Deputy Speaker, indicating that she wasn't going to have prayers or sort of was interested in not having prayers in she Parliament. something about the Senate, yes. Yeah. And a lot of people were thinking, this sounds promising. Maybe this is something that Labor's been working on and didn't want to tell us about. But then I think the other main Speaker of the Senate came out and said, well, I still want the Christian prayer. Mm. That's what we're going to be doing. So there's a bit of a hullabaloo about I think that's how it happened 
in the Senate. I, I don't care about representing over 50% mm. of Australians. Mm. Yeah, Milton Dick, I think, is the House of Reps guy, and he's pretty much keen on the Christian prayer. He's not going to change I, that. I, I, I thought it was a condition you went to see a, dick, a doctor for. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Brahman, I haven't forgotten it. Brahman, I'm only an hour and a half into this podcast. I'm going to get to it, okay? Hold your horses. I'll get to the end of this even if it kills you. <laughs> I'm going to fight this to the last Ukrainian. <laughs> okay, yeah, Bob Catter wasn't happy. He said, Christians, we're persecuted. We Christians have no illusions that we're now under persecution. Then for several paragraphs, he rants and raves and carries on, and then it finishes off with, this is still Bob Catter complaining about potential change to the prayer. And now we've been told by some that we cannot say prayers in the Parliament. We can show allegiance to some lady in England, but we cannot say prayers. So my fellow Christians, Muslim Sikhs and people of other religious belief, I say this to you. Please will you circulate the names of those who persecute you. We must stop this cold-hearted persecution. They got Pell, they got Hollingworth, got Falau. They've got the Manly boys. That's the seven footballers with the rainbow jersey. So when will they start on you? Bob Catter. And he went on to say, one person a week is taken by crocodiles in North Queensland. Did he? No. Bob Catter. That was the gay marriage. In defending the Christian prayer, is saying to his fellow Muslims and Sikhs and people of other mm. religious beliefs, circulate the names of those who persecute you. Well, they might hand him a piece of paper his with his name on it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And say, guess what, Bob? As a Muslim and a Sikh, when you force me to sit through a Christian prayer, kind of mm -hmm. like a persecution. Me. Kind of like a persecution. How does somebody who is rabbiting on about the need for Christian prayer <laughs> come to the conclusion that he will get support from the Muslim scene Sikhs? He's already proved that he's not rational. Yeah. Yeah. So why are you expecting reason to come out of him? Hello, in the chat room, Alison says, so Sue Lyons, I think, is the lady in the Senate and... Alison says, my source tells me that Sue Lyons took her party by complete surprise. Mm. There we go. So that was looking promising in the Senate, and then it wasn't. Bulga. Council. She was a council. Apparently they have got rid of the prayer and now have a moment of silent reflection. There's a victory. Slowly happening. One wogger at a time. One wogger wogger at a time. Are you a patron of this podcast, dear listener? Are you getting value from what's happening here? I'm going to read you a quickly a list of the people who are current patrons. If your name is not on this list and you think it should be, you probably your credit card expired or something crazy. And get back onto Patreon and sign up if you would like to. Thank you very much to... Obreda Puscarica, Anti Usentiment, Tristan Hennessy, Mark Clavel, Cy, Tom Stubbings. Hey, Tom, haven't heard from you for a while. I haven't seen you in the chat room. Rico, Greg P, Shannon Legg, Don Tuvey, Matt Dwyer, Sue Cripp, James Leanne, 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 
Oh, James, in Sydney. I'm going to be in Sydney the week beginning Monday the 5th of September. So on that Friday, which would be the 9th, we will have a get-together in Sydney for patrons or even non-patrons. You listen to the podcast. James, Branwen, Wayne, David Hanby, Virgil, Craig Ball, Shane Ingram, Yam Yam Blue, Zambuck, David Copley, Graham Hannigan, yet another Pinker fan, John in Dire Straits, who's in the chat room, Donnie Darko, Camille, Tom Doolan, Paul Waper, Alexander Allen, Matthew, Craig S, Glenn Bell, Professor Dr Dentist, Adam Priest, Murray Waper, Andy Dowling, Captain Doomsday, uh, Peter Gillespie, Gavin, Gavin S, Daniel Curtin, Liam McMahon, Dominic DeMassey, Matic Mann, Ronwen Ben, who's in the chat room, Kane Birch, Jimmy Spud, Tony Wall, Steve Shinners, Alison C, Ayame Wayno, Craig Gladsby and Janelle Louise and people who don't do it through um, the Patreon but do it through PayPal would be Matt Mann, Anne, Darren Giddens, Chris Tatum and I've received lots of generous stuff from Paul Waper again. And th- a big thank you to Smiley Al Klinger, who does the Morgan Freeman and David Attenborough impersonations that you hear. So thank you to all those people. And, uh, yeah, if you have not signed up as a patron, it would be appreciated if you do. I buy books and stuff, and I've just agreed to send Joe some electric equipment to help him out with his sound there. So Audio, yeah. Yeah, indeed. All right, Joe, I saw this on Twitter from Marquee Lawyers, and... It made me just almost burst out laugh. It was laughing. It was a picture of the current opposition in the House of Representatives standing around looking very unhappy. Probably some vote had gone against them at that point. They're all in very dark suits. All of them in white shirts. Nearly all of them in a dark tie. And anyway, with the picture, Marquee Lawyers had the comment, Reservoir Dogs 2 looks shit. (laughs) And they do. They look like something out of a remake of Reservoir Dogs. Anyway, good on you, Marky Lawyers. Small nuclear reactors. So this Dutton opposition has declared that, quote, it's high time that Australia had an honest and informed debate on the benefits and costs of nuclear energy. And uh, We've never had one before. Yeah. And uh, AJ, I'm just thinking, have we got the chat appearing on the screen? Would that be appearing on the video or is it all off to the side because I changed it? Oh, you're right. Yeah, I should be. Because no, I, I think I yeah. I turned it off for something. Yeah. So you're sorry, dear listener, if you, you're not going to see the comments from cross apps because we changed it. While I was showing the recordings, we turned, I turned that off in case somebody put something defamatory up there. Okay, your comments are going to appear on the screen now as well. Okay. Small nuclear reactors, Joe. So the Dutton opposition declared it's high time that Australia had an honest and informed debate on the benefits and costs of nuclear energy. Only two weeks ago, CSIRO found that wind and solar remains the cheapest source of electricity generation and storage in Australia, even when considering the additional infrastructure costs arising due to the variable output of renewables, such as the well, need... they don't realise mm-hmm. is this is all nuclear anyway. Because <laughs> <laughs> wind sun. and solar <laughs> are driven by the sun, which is a nuclear reaction. Isn't everything then, Joe? Yes. Exactly. You're getting nuclear. That's a good point. You're just getting yep. it in the form of wind and sun. <laughs> yeah. That's it. 
I know that I think he's in the chat room there is Dire Straits is kind of keen on the small nuclear reactors. And I think my brother was also, because my brother reads The Economist and a couple of other things like that where they talked about small nuclear reactors. And so the CSIRO has only just two weeks ago done what is a very regular study on the costs of these things. And it's still the case that nuclear is incredibly expensive and, and basically unproven for these small nuclear facilities. That's the latest thing. Anyone pushing... Yeah, John says, don't get me started. That's right. Sorry, John. People pushing these nuclear, they don't want a full-on big traditional nuclear power plant that you would think, you know, think Chernobyl or think Japan. There's this idea of these small modular ones that you can kind of almost make in a factory and assemble on the site and do it quickly and cheaply. Anyway, let me put up a chart which will explain the costing, well, the price of these different things. And and as you're looking there, dear listener, basically you'll see, see if I can get on a different one so I can read it more easily. So on the left, we've got different forms of gas, either gas turbine, small or large, or gas reciprocating. Then we've got coal as the second section. So you see the gas is quite expensive, coal a bit cheaper. Then we've got black coal with CCS, gas with CCS. Carbon catcher and storage. Ah, thank you. Solar thermal. There's one there with a band that's very long, which means that there's a big potential price range from just under 150 to over 320. That's the nuclear small modular one where it's difficult to gauge what it would actually cost to generate electricity from nuclear because nobody's really doing it in this so-called format. In Australia, we haven't done it. So when we try to do something that we've never done before, guess what? You get a lot of cost overruns. And, uh, and on the right, the really cheap ones, uh, solar, volt- photovoltaic, wind onshore and wind offshore. And then to the right of that, they have basically slightly increased the wind and solar, which you need to do to take into account the extra storage facilities you need and the extra lines that you need to move the electricity around the grid because renewables are not constant. So people say, oh yeah, solar and wind are cheap, but there's all this extra cost required because you need to pay for storage and shifting it around the grid because it's windy in one place but not in another, it's sunny in one place but not in another well, they've done the calculations and they've factored that in and they end up with a thing called the levelised cost of electricity. And there's the CSIRO and it is the total unit costs a generator must recover to meet all of its costs, including a return on investment. And it's estimated on a common basis for all technologies with one exception and that is they beef it up for the renewables because they need to factor in that extra infrastructure. So 
What is the Dutton opposition doing thinking of nuclear when we have the great option of wind and solar? It just doesn't make economic sense. Now, I don't know if I lived in the Northern Hemisphere where maybe there's not as much sun or wind or the conditions might be different. But in Australia, we've, let's face it, got a lot of sun and lots of wind in different places. And and one of the big concerns in Europe was security around the nuclear facilities. Yes. And if you make them small and you stick them in suburbs, you've gone from 10 power stations around the country that you have to protect to 1,000 power stations around the country that you have to protect. Yep. And we've got Russia invading Ukraine, and there's a big issue at the moment with one of the nuclear power stations in the Ukraine, I think, when they're talking about... Chernobyl uh, was. Was it in the Ukraine or was it or was it in Belarus? Was it in Ukraine, wasn't it? It's, it's close, wasn't so it? Chern- yeah. Well, they invaded Chernobyl and yeah. they were shelling it at one stage. Okay, so there you go. a big concern. Yeah. yeah. I think there's another one as well. So that's the other risk, you know, sort of terror risk of terrorist attack and that's the other risk of these small modular things, besides the fact that nobody's ever actually built them. So I've got a quiz for you, Joe, and in the chat room, still in the coalition. Here's the question. Are you ready for it, dear listener? Roman, are you ready? This is from The Chaser. Question. The coalition accused a Greens MP of acting inappropriately in Parliament this week after he, it's multiple choice, A, bonked in the prayer room, B, wanked on a desk. C, impregnated a staffer. Or D, didn't wear a tie. Now, which one of those, dear listener, (laughs) was the opposition outraged about? I'm going to go with D. (laughs) Correct, Joe. He's a Greens candidate. Because although they're hypocrites... That's the best that they can do. The Greens candidate didn't wear a tie and one of the opposition yelled out, complaining it was a breach of some standing orders or whatever, and I think the Speaker said, well, actually, there isn't a standing order that you have to wear a tie. Shock horror. Mm. I was going to say, surely all the female members of Parliament have breached that. <laughs> if there was a standing order. Yeah. I mean, the only time you wear a tie is... You don't even wear one at a wedding or a funeral. Just when you go to court. I wear ties when I go to court. That's about it. When I moved over here and was interviewing for jobs, I got a phone call from one of the agencies who knew I was going in for an interview that day, rang me up and said, don't forget to wear a shirt. (laughs) A shirt. And I went, seriously? I'm going to wear a full fucking suit. Are you telling me that people turn up to job interviews without <laughs> even a collared shirt on? And they went, yes. So I was shocked by that. There you go. In the chat room, gentlemen, have you ever rocked up for a job interview? You know, in a shirt that wasn't a collared shirt. Is that what we're saying? Yeah, in a t-shirt, in a t-shirt or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Have you have you even been to an interview in anything less than a suit? Yeah. Yeah. I've only ever Certainly been to... for a professional job. Yeah. 
I think I've only ever been for two interviews. So I, when I went for articles, as an article clerk, I had to interview for that. Mm. I don't even, do you know, I reckon, I don't think I even interviewed for it. These were the days when everybody, they, there was a shortage of lawyers. I think I just, I think I got it without an interview. I'm not exactly sure. Yeah. And then working at McDonald's. Didn't need a tie for that. <laughs> Polo shirt? Yeah. John in the chat room, I'm a truck driver. No ties here. Indeed. If you wore a tie, you would not get the job. Probably, John. You could be overdressed. Like when you've got to start deleting stuff from your CV when you're overqualified. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's so good not to have to deal with Scott Morrison on the news. I'll briefly mention an article that is in the show notes which just talks about how in the dying days, the dying hours of that government where there was the the Sri Lankan boat and the whole history of that government was not to comment on so-called on-water matters and they really wanted to get it out that there was a Sri Lankan boat. But, of course, to release that information would be breaching the thing that they had said was so important. So they pressured the public service to put out a press release and the public service said no, they wouldn't do a press release. This is Operation Sovereign Borders, but they would publish it on their website, which they did just before... Morrison had his press conference, but it took a long time for the website to refresh and to actually publish it, even though it had been, they'd done everything they needed to do. So he held a press conference when it hadn't actually been released yet officially. And just a grubby government reaching their own rules for their own political purpose. And it's so good to see that. I don't believe that for a minute. Yeah. Yep. Thank God they're gone. Paul Keating on the Morrison government. I don't think he had nothing to do with it. Mm. Yeah. Paul Keating said the point about the Morrison government is there was no point to it. Albanese government still allowing these goddamn stage three tax cuts. Come on. Well, you know, people planned around it. Yes. And there'd be too much uncertainty in the market if they didn't. Yeah, that villa that they've got. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Ah, let me get this one up. On the screen, dear listener, they've looked at census data and they've looked at electorates in the federal election that were the rich electorates full of wealthy people and the poor electorates full of poor people. And the most striking finding was that the coalition, the Morrison government as it was, won the 10 seats with the lowest household income at the federal election. And these were all seats in regional Australia. So Morrison won poor regional voters. Does this sound familiar? Does this sound... Trumpish to you, Joe? It was the Rust Belt that got him in, wasn't it? Mm. Sounds very Trumpish. This is from an article in the Poll Bludger, I think, and the guy says it validates 
his pre-election article in which he said that whites without a university education in regional areas would continue to move to the coalition. And Labor won this election owing to swings against the coalition in the cities, but no regional seat changed hands. And those that came closest to changing were all Labor held. It's very interesting. So on the screen... And it wasn't swings to Labor, was it? No, that's right. Swings to Greens and the Tears. Yeah. And just looking at age groups here, a left-hand column, the 65-year-old electorates, or you know, electorates with lots of old people, uh, actually, and then on the right, electorates with young people. Ones with the lung, young people was all Greens and Labor, and the old people were only two Labor seats, the red ones there. So essentially, if you were poor and elderly and regional, you were a classic coalition voter. If you were rich and elderly, you were a coalition or teal voter. And if you were young, you were likely to be Labor or Greens. Interesting the way the whole demographic stuff pans out and it's frighteningly familiar to what seemed to be the case in America with the whole Trump scenario. That's worrying. That's the worrying thing about all that is how much we seem to have followed a bit of an American pattern, although they didn't have a third party to help them out there. That is one of the things. I was, I was listening to another podcast today and it was just bemoaning how in America, you know, the Democrats are essentially just another right-wing party. I mean, they're all in on this mm-hmm. anti-China and all the rest of it. And because they don't have the preferential voting system, you know, they, there's no scope, it seems, for a third party to come through or an independent to come through like this. If you have watched the politics in the animal kingdom, mm-hmm. uh, the... I think you've sent the link before, but I don't think I've actually. Okay, I don't think I've actually um, he, looked at it. He explains the the first pass of the post and the other yeah. one, and why that tends to two party systems, and even the the system we've got here tends yeah. to two party systems. Yeah, and it's it's only proportional representation. And I think single transferable vote that leads to a truly proportional, you don't get any major parties in the same way. Yeah. Yeah. And that seems to be what happens in Europe. They seem to have coalitions of different parties, mm-hmm. more so than these. Depending on where. Mm. Yep. Yep. UK currently trying to work out who's going to replace Boris Johnson. Did you see that headline? Which one was that, Joe? Out of the lying man into the dire. <laughs> Out of the lying man into the dire. What? What's yeah. dire? What's... So the the choice of conservative politicians to take over the prime ministership. Right. Okay. Was was saying they were going from the lying man into the dire. Right. Okay. And it looks like the female candidate's probably going to be the yeah. new party leader. It seems to be both of them very unimpressive. Yes. Mm. So I did see a couple of articles about her, but yeah, as in she was doing stuff and people going, really, is this going to be our new prime minister? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and someone was commenting about, oh, my God, 
how how could we possibly have a woman prime minister <laughs> forgetting that they've already had to? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, officially, how does it work? So first of all, we had the Conservative MPs narrowed it down to two. So to take part in a race, a Tory MP had to be nominated by eight colleagues. Once all the candidates have declared, Tory MPs hold a series of votes until only two remain. In the first round, candidates must get 5% of the votes to stay in the running, which is 18 votes. In the second round, they must get 10%, currently 36 MPs. In the following rounds, the candidate with the least number of votes is eliminated until two candidates remain. So that's how they got to the position of the two. And when two MPs are left in the race, party members, as opposed to the parliamentarians, get to make their final choice before a deadline set by the 1922 committee, whoever that is. So that's how we got to that point. Right. It's a right-wing leadership right. committee over the Conservative Party. Yep. That's the official version on Twitter Ooh. from Hugh Problem. I'm seeing Rishi Sunak defeated Liz Truss. Oh, just come through, did it? Well, this is four days yeah. ago. Oh, I didn't see that. Somebody else can Google that. That was the official version, dear listener, of how it's supposed to happen. According to Hugh Grant, now I don't know if this is the Hugh Grant actor or Hugh Grant somebody else, but anyway, Hugh Grant on Twitter might be the Hugh Grant. Dear world, you may be wondering what happens next in terms of the British Constitution. The answer is that three newspaper owners, all of whom are non-domiciled in the UK for tax purposes, get together and choose our next Prime Minister. <laughs> the Queen then anoints them. I think that is how it works. We didn't even get to mention, I don't think I've got to mention, in Queensland, the Queensland coal tax. Mm. Before the state budget, Queensland had a three-tiered coal royalty regime where the government took 7% of sales revenue up to $100 a tonne, 12.5% of the value between $100 and $150 a tonne, and 15% for any revenue generated above $150 a tonne. And, dear listener, there was a huge boom in the coal price and the Queensland government changed the rate to be 20% for prices above $175 a tonne, 30% above $225 a tonne, and 40% when prices surpassed $300 a tonne. And you know what? We haven't heard a peep about it because there was no discussion and no ability. It just it was a boom like that. And it's a demonstration that... You know, had they leaked, had they had some sort of announcement, inquiry, the Murdoch papers would have been full of pressure and there would have been some campaign and there would be some rigmarole about it. But it was basically not a whisper, really, of this going to happen. And then overnight, oh, by the way, this is what we're doing. And, of course, a few within the industry in the next day or two were like, oh, I'm not very happy with that. Done and dusted. Like a really good example that can do. They've been pissing about Palaszczuk recently. What, what was that? Oh, the Murdoch rags have been particularly pissy about Palaszczuk. So, so maybe it was just vengeance for this. But they'd run out of ink. <laughs> no, yeah, maybe. no. Oh, they're always they're always on to whenever they get the chance. Alison says the Minerals Council did an ad opposing it. Yeah, 
it was a pretty weak response overall, I think, at the end of the day. So yeah, I think it was just a good example that just bite the bullet and do it. You can get things done. Did you hear that the FBI? Yes, I did. Ransacked Marilago, or oh, well, they searched Marilago for evidence for the presumably the Capitol riots. Yeah, saw this on Twitter. Apparently, no, it was about the improper handling of classified documents. Ah, this is to do with him flushing stuff down the toilets that he was accused apparently. of. Apparently. Mm. Well, no, apparently they, he when he moved out of the White House, he took boxes and boxes of classified papers to Mar-a-Lago. Mm. Okay, yep. So on Fox News, they had a picture of Mar-a-Lago and the sort of banner underneath was, you know, it could have been FBI searches Trump's home for evidence. But no, this was Fox. So they had Biden's FBI ransacks home of potential 2024 opponent. Just great. Well, uh, what's wrong with that? <laughs> Everything. Yeah. You know, he, he went to France and he saw they put on a show it was a commemoration of America's entry into one war or something or helping out the Allies during the war and, you know, there were sort of military parades and planes flying overhead and Trump loved it, just loved it. Came back to America and said, I want this same thing. Give me a show like this. And the general, in Washington, and the general mm-hmm. said, well, we can't. The tanks will just rip up the streets like the bitumen will be a mess. We can't have tanks running up and down the streets of Washington in a display like this. And besides, it's not appropriate. Like, it's, it's dictators who haul out stuff like that. And uh, mm-hmm. he was whinging and carrying and the French. on. Yes, <laughs> dictators and the French. That's it. Well, they put it on a show for him just to keep him happy. Right. But, yeah. Okay. It's like, oh, we don't want to do this, but oh, Trump's here. We better roll out a few tanks. <laughs> anyway... He was complaining about his generals and how they wouldn't do it and he was complaining to his chief of staff, Kelly, and he said, say from this article, this is from the New Yorker. By the way, dear listener, like these articles are from all over the planet, the New Yorker, John Menadue blog, Verge, like honestly, tonight's articles have probably been from about 20 different sources. If you remember I said... Get yourself an RSS feed reader and subscribes to stuff and get some varied content. If you don't want to do that, go onto the website, ironfistvelvetclub.com.au, and you'll see a link there for the newsletter. And essentially, during the week, as I'm highlighting articles that may or may not get discussed on the podcast, they get put into this little basket, and that will form part of our email three times a week. So if you want something interesting to read like an advanced reading of these articles, you can just put your email address in there and you'll get it. Or you can just look at them on the website. doesn't cost you anything. How good's that? But I digress. So the generals <laughs> wouldn't let him do it. So Trump says, it turns out the generals had real standards and expertise, not blind loyalty. The president's loud complaint to John Kelly one day was typical you fucking generals, why can't you be like the German generals? Which generals, Kelly said? 
The German generals in World War II, Trump responded. Kelly said, you do know that they tried to kill Hitler three times and almost pulled it off. Tempting. Right. I think I'm going to have to get Paul Laper back on this because we have to tackle the voice. I've been working my way through the report or the recommendation, which is, oh, where is this thing? Let me just find it. This was this was the report by, uh, what's her name now? It's, it's here. Let me just find it. Marshall Langton and Tom Kalmer. That's it. Thank you, Joe. Which I think is 297 pages. So I'm working my way through it. And essentially, I said to my wife, what do you think of this voice department? And she said, what voice department? Now, admittedly, we've been on holidays and not reading stuff. But... I, I saw the proposed wording of the plebiscite, mm. which didn't seem too odious. Mm. But it basically said there will be a voice to parliament, it'll be an advisory body, and Parliament will pass whatever laws are necessary. And it was basically devolving all power to Parliament anyway, other yes. than the fact that it existed and would be funded, I think. Yes. So, so I have to admit, as, I was, as I've been working my way through this document, my impressions are ultimately they're talking about this voice to Parliament would be 25 members, I think the total was eventually, two from each state, and then there were five states that, or maybe it was six states, that would produce a regional, uh, a remote person. So, so five of the, well, it must be six of the states, were producing a representative who had to be from a remote area. And certainly, in, uh, sorry? It's, uh, looking at the diagram you put in the show notes, yeah. it's five states, but there are six additional members because Queensland gets one onshore and one offshore by the way. Oh, that would be the Torres Strait. Yep. So, yeah, five states produce one, and then I think the Torres Strait Islanders produce another remote person, something like that. So, yeah. And that would be the voice. And the document is quite extensive in terms, like, you got to, you have to say that on the face of it, there's obviously a lot of consultation has been done with all sorts of groups. And the question is, probably first of all, well, how will these people be elected to represent? So say for Queensland, for example, there will be automatically two people and then there'll be a third person who must be from a a remote area, so three in total. Who is going to vote for them? How are they going to vote for them? And essentially, as my reading so far is that they've been really keen to make things flexible and leave it up to each district region group to sort of figure it out for themselves as much as possible as to how they would like to do it. So ideally from a grassroots perspective. So anyway, still working my way through it and, and yeah, quite a long document and have to say, obviously lots of consultation and and very much a determination to hear from people at the ground level, if you like, as much as possible. 
That's probably all I'd have to say at this point. John in the chat room. Well, they all get chairs that spin around with a big red button for legislation. <laughs> Didn't see that. Yeah. Certainly as you read, the, it'll be interesting to see if the question, uh, I have to look more carefully at the question. And Are they going to get John Farnham to serenade them? That's the question. Yeah. But he's retired. He Telling doesn't see anymore. His last tour. Okay. He's, I'm sure he did his last tour ten times, so I don't think Probably. he sings anymore. Yeah. Mm, I think that's all I need to say on that. Okay, what are we up to? Joe, it's only been two hours and ten minutes. <laughs> yeah. Small episode. It, it, it feels like it's at least two weeks since we recorded an episode. Yeah. All right. Well, dear listener, and if you're in the chat room, if you hung on in the chat room all this time, well done. It's dedication. It is. Yep. It's because uh, there's no daylight savings. They haven't had to go to bed. Yeah. That's true. There's probably nothing on TV. All right. Well, I think that was a fair episode. I don't know. Next week, I think I might do some sort of book type thing. Something shorter and briefer, maybe. It won't be just what's happened in the previous week because surely not much could happen in the next week. So James says he got his money's worth. That's good, James. We don't have to worry about Shay going in the shark tank, though. No, we don't have to. Yeah. Yep. So, all right, dear listener, thanks for tuning in. Talk to you next time and bye for now. You can say goodbye, Joe. (laughs) Goodbye, Joe. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to and maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for iron fist velvet glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh and just put the word out the other thing is you could become a patron and support the show so if you go to our website you'll see a link to patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really, the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to, I think, $10 and various ones in between. And it's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth... More than that, less than that, whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners. And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.